Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're listening to the Story Series. This week, a special interview with Chris Marshall. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're here with uh, Justin and Sam interviewing Chris Marshall for a special edition of the podcast. And again, we're continuing our uh, story series where we've been looking at the meta story of scripture, uh, essentially to figure out how we can better live today in a way that's both consistent with the biblical story, but also uh, is innovative to meet the challenges of our time. And one of the things that we wanted to do on this uh, edition of the podcast is essentially wrestle with uh, sort of a, a relevant topic of our time in terms of how we as Christians engage in the political sphere. And how does the story of Scripture inform our political involvement as Christians? We're not so much interested in giving you an answer for who to vote for. Um, It's mainly about approach. How do we address the challenges and issues of our time, coming at them with a a lens um, that's kind of shaped by the meta-story of Scripture? And since Chris is the the wisest amongst us, we, we'll pick his brain and just ask a lot of questions to help kind of land some of this for us. So we hope you enjoy the conversation with us. So I guess I wanted, Chris, to start with a sort of personal-esque question for you. How have you approached answering the question of uh, how scriptures informed your view of political involvement, or how has the story of scripture, I should say, shaped your view of political involvement as, as a Christian? Um... Well, maybe I'll go back to my youth, where the prevailing sort of Christian um, position was that Christians really should have nothing to do with politics. So in the sort of, certainly within the more conservative evangelical part of the church, there was a sense that politics was bad. It was, it was um, you know, it wasn't something that Christians ought to be involved with. Christians ought rather to be involved with spiritual things and with um, with preaching the gospel um, and with individual piety and morality, but not with politics. Mm-hmm. There was then a quite massive shift that occurred in the late 1980s with the advent in the US of the moral majority, where conservative Christians, in a sense, rediscovered their political power um, in a democracy, and in the US democracy in particular, and moved wholesale back into the political arena, uh, usually championing a very conservative morally and uh, economically conservative set of policies, and to this day remain a very influential force in American politics. Uh, Not so much in New Zealand, but certainly in the US. Um, But I think Everywhere, it's, you no longer have to defend the idea that Christians should ought to be engaged in politics, which you, you did once have to do. Um, now I think the question is what kind of involvement should Christians have? What position should the Christian voice represent mm. in the political debate? Um, and that's, you know, that's a, very, it's a very controversial and very difficult issue. So I guess for me, part of the journey has been um, a discovery. It wasn't a big shift because, I mean, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, and, I mean, political involvement was, um, you know, was, was common, really, amongst younger people then. So it wasn't a huge 
huge mental shift, but part of it was um, rediscovering the fact that the gospel included a political dimension. So I remember when I was a student reading a book called The Great Reversal, and it really traced historically how um, the evangelical wing of the church had deserted politics, um, but prior to that desertion had been a very very, very influential uh, voice in the political in the 19th century, 18th, 19th century. And then with the, you know, with the um, reaction against modernism and the retreat into fundamentalism, then it involved a retreat from politics. And, and the book was arguing this is actually a reversal of what had, had, had been you know, the, 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 the normal situation. So I, I was really, as a student, I was part of that kind of uh, reclaiming political engagement as part of Christian discipleship. Um, so it's never been a really big problem for me. But I think having done that, the question then became or becomes, well, where in the huge diversity of themes and examples that we find in the biblical narrative, where do we find our primary reference point for helping us to decide um, on, the, on the political positions we want to support? And, um, you know, it's, it's simple to say, but it's hard to... It's hard to to work out in practice, but for me, the key question is, or the, or the key consideration is, the role of the of the Jesus story within this larger narrative as being the position from which we view the whole narrative, both everything that preceded it and everything that follows it. We we attempt to understand through the demonstration of of uh, human life that we see lived in Jesus, um, and so that that to me, is the most important reference point. I mean, I think if we just say, you know, how do we judge our political views against Scripture? Mm. Well, you know, it could be anything. It could be conquest. It could be war. It could be monarchy. It could be slavery. It could be any number of political mm. positions mm. that Christians historically have, have found themselves supporting. So it's not primarily the question, well, how does Scripture inform our political debate, but how does scripture help us to understand the story of Jesus, which informs our political position? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, and then and then from that, I guess it, it becomes a question of how we interpret the Jesus story. And I, I think it is important that the Gospels come to us as story. I mean, mm. Jesus didn't um, enunciate a set of political principles. He didn't, mm. he didn't run for the Sanhedrin. He didn't... Mm. Um, he didn't attempt to exercise coercive political office or power. Uh, he lived a particular life that had political dimensions. And so, you know, we have to kind of um, indwell that story as best we can and ask, well, how does this inform the way we live today? And that's, you know, there's, there's no, no one position that can be championed for all time from that story. Hmm. It's a much more creative thing than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. But I, I, I suppose even though you, you can say, you know, no one position that can be championed for all time, there are definitely themes yeah. that you'll be yeah. seeing come through. And yeah. so perhaps that's a, a good place to start is, is, you know, as you see it, what are the main political themes that you see mm. coming from the life of Christ? Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, th I think the most obvious and the one that, 
is probably still the most challenging is we see a radical commitment to the poor. Um, I mean, that has to be the dominant characteristic of Jesus' mission was that he went to the margins of society to proclaim the, the rule of God. He didn't, he didn't go to the centre of society uh, in the first instance. So he appealed to those who possessed limited, if any, political or economic power and said that the gospel is good news for you. Um, so that would have to be, I think, a really dominant theme. I think, I think there is a theme of, of non-violence and, and peacemaking, um, a refusal to employ lethal force in order to achieve uh, goods, the, the sort of social goods that he proclaimed. Um, so there's a kind of, a, I think there's a sort of suspicion about human power Mm. and a caution about the use of coercive power. Um, now, that, I mean, when you say, well, what does that mean for political life? Because political life requires some use of force. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Jesus would call us to be very um, sceptical about the extent to which we can deploy coercion to achieve higher goods um, not to say that it's always out of out of place but I think it's, it's something that we need to be very suspicious of um, what are the political themes I mean I think I think we find a you know these are all modern terms and they all come with their own baggage but I think we find quite a radical egalitarianism in the way that he understands uh, relationships and community uh, so when Jesus takes the child and puts it in front of his disciples and says, he is your model, I mean, that's politically incredibly radical. Mm. It upends the kind of conventions of dominance and power that we just take for granted in political life. Mm. Um, you know, I think the, there, was, there was an inclusivism towards, towards uh, different classes and, and, and um, you know, racial groups, a transcending of boundaries which we see spelled out further in the early church. So I think, I think it is possible to identify some, you know, some characteristic themes that, mm. that we should use as a way of measuring political commitments while recognising that it's always going to be a, you know, it's always going to be a, um, there are only going to be levels of achievement, there are only going to be levels of being able to actually live up to these these themes. One of the things that you mentioned, Chris, you, you wrote an article. Um, I can't know, the title of it just escaped me. Uh, but the, you have a quote in it uh, around Jesus as a political figure mm. that I found quite interesting in terms of how Jesus carried out. So we're talking about political themes, but also about how he engaged in the political sphere of his time. And you said that Jesus, his, uh, his approach was broadly speaking, his political stance was characterized by a prophetic denunciation of the injustices, the injustices and social evils of the prevailing social order, on the one hand, including a strident declaration of divine judgment on the existing centers of power responsible for oppression and injustice, and by calling together an alternative community to live according to the standards of God's kingdom of justice and peace, and thereby model and affect the renewal of Israel as a whole. Right. And that, I felt, was quite challenging in terms of 
do you see this? Those two um, characterizations are are uh, expressions of uh, of a role for the church today. Is it, is it carries on to continue to be prophetic and denouncing denouncing injustice? Yeah. I mean, in a sense in which that quote is trying to stand between two opposite extremes that you see in the history of the church. I mean, one I've already talked about, which is this withdrawal from political engagement, or withdrawal from involvement in worldly affairs, um, to, to be a kind of segregated community that lives according to its own, own rules. Um, and I must admit that at times I still find that quite an attractive option. <laughs> you know, when I look at the kind of uh, political realities, I can see why... People have said that, you know, the pox in all their houses, you know, we, we, we need to sort of not have anything to do with it. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, which has been more damaging, I think, has been the attempt to achieve what are perceived as, uh, as political, you know, um, goods or, or God's will in the political sphere through taking control of government and through the use of force. And so, you know, for much of Christian history, the church has simply been the nation at prayer. It's just been the religious face of the social community, um, and you can trace that back to you know to the to the conversion of Emperor Constantine back in the fourth century. And to put it really simply, you could say that you know up until that time, and this is a radical simplification, but up until that time, the church had called Caesar to be like Jesus. And after that time, the thought was. Well, you know, Caesar can't possibly live like Jesus, and so you know, Caesar should live according to the sort of rules that Caesar requires. Um, and I think that quote is suggesting that really the truth is is neither of those options. It is, on the one hand, I think, to be uh, critical of oppression as we see it and injustice, and to and to you know to side with the oppressed and the poor and so on, to be politically engaged in that sense. But at the same time, to attempt to cultivate an alternative sort of society that lives free of the, you know, of the of the powers, and I think they're more than just bad policies. I mean, the spiritual powers that uh, that corrupt human life. So a community that actually can live together in peace, a community that actually can share its resources, um, you know, a community that can actually deal with with the kind of sins that mar wider society. And you saw the the early church essentially continuing that alternative model. Yeah. And do you see yeah. it as well continuing to play that kind of denunciation part as well? I mean, I think it did, but probably not in the public arena in quite the way. I mean, martyrdom was part of that. Yeah, you know, that's it was right. a, yeah. It was a, a willingness to um, to dissent from certain dominant political realities such as the worship of the emperor and to pay the price for it. So that was a kind of public witness. But I. I don't think in the early centuries you see the church, you know, having sit-ins and demonstrations and yeah, that's right. um, or publishing, you know, publishing um, political tracts or so on. I think within their own internal life, they certainly they certainly commented on the um, the evils of of the world around them, and, but as a way of trying to live an alternative mm. alternative community within. Mm. It's definitely a difficult one to navigate because it could quite easily you know swing too far in either direction couldn't it because I already know that in, in the article you mentioned the Qumran community who basically were if, if I'm if I'm right in my remembering they devoted themselves to preserving you know biblical manuscripts mm. and, and 
um, sort of living out their faith that way. Yeah. And, you know, then there's, you know, going a little bit too far and you have, I don't know, this, the church married to the state and so the yeah. state compromises the church and the yeah. church compromises the state and you kind of get this very... I don't know murky water between you know what is what what does it mean to be a, you know involved in politics and use the word it's an awkward word but Christianly yeah yeah and I guess one of the the best ways I've heard it put was you know if you're a Christian shoemaker is your role as a as a Christian shoemaker to have little iconic crosses on your produce you know on your on your product or is the role of the Christian shoemaker to make really good shoes yeah you know like it. it it's very hard, I guess, for people to come down on, on something decisively. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's part of the sense of vocation, isn't it? I mean, mm. I think the call of a Christian shoemaker is to be a good shoemaker. Mm. But perhaps it's also to ask about why only some people can afford shoes mm. and um, about the, you know, where the leather comes from and all those sorts of questions as well. I mean, it's to be a witness, isn't it? I think fundamentally, this is the, this is the category I find most helpful which is the calling on us as Christians is to bear witness to a reality that transforms and transcends what we see around us. And there are many different ways that we bear witness, and we don't always do it by words, um, but simply giving credibility to this message through allowing it to at least begin to transform us and... I mean, that's, to me, the heart and soul of Christian political engagement as well. It's to be involved in the political arena in a way that bears witness to a power that is able to overcome the things upon which politicians usually depend, mm -hmm. which is wealth and power and favouritism and strategising and so on. Um, so, that, so that following Jesus seems to make a difference. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, the, I, the, within the, I think within the history of Christian thought, there is been a one of the other solutions to this problem of either being captured by by the, by the state or withdrawing entirely is to say that these two spheres that really don't have anything to do with each other mm. so when the Christian Luther said this when the Christian sits in judgment as a judge on the court then he should be as harsh as any other judge because his role there is to fulfill the vocation of a judge. Mm. It's not to be a source of mercy and forgiveness, because that belongs to the church. So this sort of dualism between world and church has been another way. And it's a kind of an intellectually neat way to do it, to say you know, God has one will for this sphere of life, and has another will for this other sphere of life. Um, but I, I think, I mean, that's the kind of dualism that allowed Hitler to arise, because the church saw its task as preaching the gospel, not mm. making... And I suppose that's, you know, it sort of leads into another one of your um, examples you, you used was the idea of the talking head, that mm. Jesus, you know, you, you, the tendency for people um, to take isolated scriptural mm. moments and go, this is what Jesus is saying. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, I guess, relevant without context. And so you can just go, well, I mean, you know, Jesus becomes a proverb sayer, not yeah, so exactly. much a, a, yeah. a historical figure. Yeah. And so that's, you know, I guess how you kind of get that position where, you know, no, no, we're preaching the gospel because it means yeah. this, this and this. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that, is that kind of how you see that happening? Oh, yeah, very much so. And I think that kind of, uh, I think I call it fragmentary reading strategies, that idea that, um, and it's particularly apparent in, in more radical New Testament scholarship, which believes that 
the, the gospel tradition is full of authentic material and inauthentic material, mm. the stuff that Jesus actually said and the stuff that others have put on his lips. And we need to make a distinction between these two and give priority to the so-called authentic deposit. And you know, depending on your on your scepticism, that deposit may be very small or it may be, may be larger. Um, uh, so that's the scholarly version of it. But I think also within the within the sort of believing community, there can be an idea that there are there are these slogans that you simply take and you make them apply to your situation. Mm. Whereas what I think we need to do is look at the whole shape of Jesus' life um, in in the political and social and economic context of his own day, and 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 look for the things that drove him, the things that motivated him, look for the way that he dealt with temptations to power and to violence and so on and and sort of get a, a, a kind of an overall picture of a human life lived under the reign of God and then understand the key sayings mm. within that context so I mean this this is very much an issue when it comes to the question of whether Jesus supported violence or not so people say well Jesus said I came not you know, I came to bring a sword there there you go he supports the use of swords or mm. Um, but that taking a verse completely out of context, as though he's just a he's just a, um, a sloganeering kind of figure. Mm. When so I was it's really unhelpful. When I was doing um, sort of my reflection on on, on this occasion, I, I, I chose to put it as like a soothing spiritual agent, sort of. So you know, it's it's that kind of you can pull out a, a, a saying, and it's going to make sure that you know you're validated. You know rather than yeah. being forced to confront this wider picture. Yeah. And yeah. in some ways I kind of I kind of liken that to um the way that sort of you know certain Christian political figures kind of engage with issues right now. So for you know uh, without trying to get into too many of these issues uh, you know in a, in a micro kind of sense. You know um the the supposed Christian position is you know against abortion against um in, in the U.S. particularly, you know, against a liberal Supreme Court judge, but it doesn't have any place, it would seem, to recognise systemic racism mm. within the U.S. because it's too hard. Mm. Or, or, you know, like, I, yeah, I wonder if that's kind of a, an analogous, you know, when you, when you break the gospel down like that into slogans and sayings, yep. Yep. whether, you know, that allows for you to just go, well, you know, I'm against abortion, perhaps, therefore I'm a good Christian in politics. yeah. Yeah, I think certainly if you if you're just looking for a series of wisdom sayings to guide your views, it does become very individualistic, mm. and and doesn't take into account the sort of systemic um, realities that that you have to wrestle with. I mean, I think in the article I quote somebody as saying that if Jesus, if the historical Jesus was the kind of figure that uh, contemporary conservative Christianity portrays him as the Romans would have given him a prize rather than crucified him because mm. that was precisely the kind of spiritual soothing soothsayer mm. that helped to keep the masses quiet. Mm. Um, so we have to, I think, in terms of wrestling with this bigger story, we have to say, well, any interpretation we have of the significance of Jesus has to explain why the Romans wanted to get rid of him. Mm. I mean, what was it about his life that posed a threat mm. to the to the existing political order, mm. uh, you know, both Roman and, and its Jewish um, administrators. And I suppose the, the most kind of obvious example of that is the example of the, the denarius, you know, mm. should you pay taxes? Do you, do you have any commentary on that that might be helpful at this point? 
Well, it's, it's, one, it's one of those masterful stories that you find where Jesus gets himself, gets himself out of a really tight spot because it's a little, little bit like the case of the woman in John 8 who was brought before him who had been caught in the act of adultery. And the way they posed the issue, Jesus was damned one way or the other, whatever mm-hmm. he said. And uh, in his brilliance, he manages to reframe the issue in a different way. And I think with the denarius, um, you know, the saying, render unto God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Um, traditionally, we take that to mean, well, be a good law-abiding citizen in your, in your secular life mm-hmm. and, and you know, be a good spiritual praying Christian in your, in, your, in your religious life. And that's what Jesus was getting at. But I think really he's posing a question, what does Caesar have legitimate claim to? Um, and once you know what he can legitimately claim, then give him his legitimate claim. But he doesn't say what it is. Mm. Uh, so it's measured. And I think there's a lot of other subtle things in that story mm. around image bearing and mm. and you know who truly represents God in the world. Is it is it the power of Caesar or is it the the race of Adam? You know, there's, mm. there's a, a lot going on there. But um, you know, it's a kind of teasing answer, as often we find that leaves us trying to get to the deeper issues. One of the things that I'm interested in, Chris, just in terms of sustaining uh, any sense of political engagement, one of the things I find challenging is is that base of how we hope uh, in terms of, I think often in, Christ- yeah, in Christianity it's framed as, you know, God's going to act. And until God acts, you know, it's sort of, mm. we, we bear witness the best we can, but it, essentially that we're not going to fix this place. That That yeah. story of progress is not one that we... In, in our tradition yeah. that you adhere to. So it, I guess for me, it's, it's, it's that tension of engaging in any sort of, uh, whether it's the environmental or um, political, um, you know, even, even from a health perspective, improving yeah. uh, the well-being of, of, of people's, um, from a health side. I, how, do, how do we balance the tension of the necessity of God's redemptive action while still working for yeah. a better place yeah. today. Well, I think the tension's the important thing, really, mm-hmm. because you know, if we don't ultimately recognize that the kingdom is God's work, mm-hmm. then our temptation is to divinize human political structures um, because this is the way God's will is going to be achieved through us through and through us, our yeah. power. And so there's, a, there's always, I think, within uh, Christian belief, there is always this check on human vanity that at the end of the day it's actually not about you it's about God and therefore you need a humility about what you do uh, on the other hand if we just leave it all to God <laughs> then um, you know as one I think it was under the Reagan administration when Secretary of the Environment made a comment to the effect that it didn't really matter if the rainforests were all destroyed because when Christ came again he'd regrow them mm-hmm. um, so there's a complete cleavage between how you live yeah. now and how you live in the future yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of things I'd say about that. One, I really like the the notion of collaborative eschatology, mm-hmm. that um, when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, he wasn't simply saying, this is, you know, wait because you're going to see God do something and you don't, won't have anything to do, it, or do with it. But rather it was God is doing something and he's inviting you to collaborate with this work. And so in the, all the parables of Jesus, the characters are always very active doing something. They're all fully engaged. 
because I think whatever God is doing in this kind of initial way at the moment, he's doing it at least partly through through others, mm. and we're invited to collaborate with that. Mm. Um, and in that way, bear witness to where history is going and what really matters to God. Um, but it is just a collaboration. It's not that we've been given the task to do it on our own, and, and God's just waiting for us to finally mm. sort it out. Um, and I, I think at different, you know, at different stages, I think probably different parts of this polarity need emphasizing. I mean, it almost depends what heresy you're most afraid of. Um, and if you're in a situation where there is a kind of um, triumphalism taking place where a particular section or group is championing itself as the instrument of God's will in the world, you might want to, you know, that's the kingdom of God. That's yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not the kingdom of you. Yeah. On the other hand, if there's people who are simply you know, waiting for the rapture, you might want to remind them that um, you know, God's inviting us to help him realize this vision. I think it's something that I noticed, particularly during this um, U.S. election, when I visited home, just how uh, over the whole political system most of the Americans yeah, I was speaking to yeah. were they lost any faith yeah. in the ability of the system to function. Yeah, and and there's almost an acceptance of its brokenness without any need to impact or try to change it or change how they're approaching it. Mm. And, I, and I have to own inside of me, I, I, I know that futility, right? Mm. You, to taste the sort of despair of something and just sort of accept it. Mm. Uh, is there space for Christianity to, to engage, and it's probably too big a frame, for the Christian at least, to engage in, in trying to make a better government system? Yeah. Um, or is it something, again, that we framed as that's for the world? No, no I think, I mean, who's the person that, that coined the phrase of being, um, what was the term, being um, collaborators, not allies? Something some to that effect. I mean, I think, uh, you know, political life is really about the exercise of power on behalf of the whole community. And mm -hmm. I think we are all part of that community and the way that power is exercised in that community is important. Mm -hmm but we don't have any monopoly on virtue or any monopoly on political wisdom. So I think Christians ought to be involved with others in trying to fix a system that is corrupt and is because, you know, because it's always the weak and the poor who suffer most as a result of that. And, mm. But to do so in a way that you know, has that humility, I suppose, that comes from the fact that... Um, We'll never get it right. We just need to be constantly trying to measure what we are doing against the perfection of human life we see displayed in Jesus. And uh, and I, you know, I think we can only ever read at a distance what impact we have. So, I mean, one of the stories that I quite like is uh, during the Second World War in the U.S., the Mennonites and Quakers, who were conscientious objectors. Uh, were offered alternative service uh, uh, as an alternative to going to the military, and many of them went into mental institutions and worked with. And they found, you know, they found the sort of Victorian system where people were being brutalised. And through their involvement over those years working in mental health facilities, they brought 
real improvement and real light to a very dark place. Mm. And it's kind of the, you know, to me that's, that's the kind of salt of the kingdom really. It's, it's at the, in, in a sense, the least important place <laughs> uh, you, that this, ta- this happens. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's through a kind of principled non-involvement in the violence of the world that they're there in the first place. And in being there, they're able to bring, bring Christ into that presence. Right? Those, to me, are the marks of the church and the world, much more than, than fixing the broken system Mm. at some sort of structural level, although that's important too. It's really important. Mm. It, it is interesting um, when we talk about, say, you know, fixing a broken system, should Christians be involved, that <clears throat> I guess increasing awareness, or maybe we're way past that, I don't know, this whole idea of there are so many different belief systems and all, all of that kind of thing, and how potentially being a Christian in a political sphere could be quite divisive and you know, mm. we, you know, and there are some people who would definitely call for, you know, only secular expressions of government. Um, uh, there was an American philosopher, Richard Rorty, who said the problem with religion, when you talk about it in public discourse, is if you're speaking out of your religious convictions, other people don't have access to that. So what we need to do is put your religion in the back. Mm. Let's agree on practical solutions to the problems that we're facing, like AIDS, poverty, education. Work together and keep your religious views behind you. Mm. And then um, Tim Keller, the American uh, pastor, has a pushback saying, as soon as Richard Rorty says, let's all agree to work together on the problems we have, he recognises you can't begin to work on those problems unless you have underlying commitments to what human flourishing is. Mm. And those underlying commitments to human flourishing are based on views of human nature and spiritual reality that cannot be proven in a test tube. I'm I'm quoting him here. Um, Cannot be proven scientifically. They're not self-evident to everybody. And everyone has got moral commitments that are not accessible to everyone else. So I suppose, in a way, you know, we kind of can't escape this no, idea. No, we can't. And I, mean, I think, you know, the, the, the conventional story goes, and it's, you know, it's, been, it's been critiqued, but the conventional story goes that, um, you know, out of, the, out of the wars of religion that followed on the Reformation, mm. uh, there was such a level of bloodshed and religious intolerance that the secular state grew up as a way of trying to provide peace by rising above that. And secularism became, you know, the salvation really from religious extremism. Um, and and yet we found, I think, that, that secular ideology can be every bit as intolerant as certainly every bit as bloody uh, as religious um, conviction can be. And so, and also it, it, it can be intolerant towards religion itself. So, you know, it, it can actually deny the democratic right of religious Actors to participate in the public sphere on the on the grounds that you have to subscribe to secularism in order to be part of the game. Mm. So I think I mean I, I I do think the separation of church and state in the U.S. Constitution is a very significant thing, and I think it's an important uh, separation. Um, but I I guess the sort of society I think we ought to try to aspire to is one of confessional pluralism. Where different faith communities, not just the, not just the Christian community, which often in the US is is, you know, is, is, is vying for political dominance. I mean, it, it is a kind of we'll be the one that are arbiters of what everybody ought to believe and do. So not just the Christian community. I think all religious communities, all I mean, all principle-based communities, have a right to sit at the table 
and to and to contribute to the discussions about the common good, um, believing that there is enough overlap in their views of the way humans ought to live together in society, that it's possible to it's possible to live at peace and to um, allow different voices to contribute to the richness of the of the discourse. So then, I think that that raises the question: is is you know. Do you have any strategies or any thoughts on how then you approach vehement disagreements because those are going to arise? You know, mm. you you can't. As lovely as it is to bring together different points of view and have dialogue, yeah. Yeah. At, at some point you, you know, there will be conflict. So do you have any yeah. kind of practical thoughts on? Um. Well, I guess just two things. One is I think this is always going to be a matter of continuing dialogue. I think it's important to recognise that we'll always be debating issues. Mm. And you just have to go back a few generations to see that those issues change from, from time to time. At the moment, especially in the US, it's particularly, particularly abortion. Particularly abortion. Um, the death penalty doesn't get quite the same attention. No, no. Or, or no. you know, nuclear arms race or whatever, but abortion is seen as a make and break issue or, or same-sex marriage. Go back a few generations, it'll be a different, a different set of issues. So I think as long as you recognise that we will always be involved in discussion about, about what is, you know, what is the, the most um, human way to live together. That's the first point. I think the second point is if you get into a situation where there is just radical disagreement um, and policy decisions have to be made, you can't just go on talking about it in a, in a vacuum, then I suppose in a democracy you have to, you know, you have to follow what the, what the democratic consensus or majority is. Um, but hopefully allowing for you know, for principled dissent um, on the part of different communities. Mm. I mean, I, otherwise, the only way you can settle that disagreement is by force. Mm. And, um, I mean, dialogue is always preferable to... Yeah, to bloodshed. To bloodshed, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess at those points, as a follower of Jesus, you you probably do want to say um, these aren't ultimate issues. I mean, these are you know these are important issues, but the ultimate issue is is the reign of God and um, and a belief. How about so? Slightly, what I would consider probably a more difficult topic to tackle is you know within the believing body, there's going to be such mm. divisiveness because you know. As as you know, there's the conservative church, the liberal church. Now, how do you how do you engage with, you know, people who are supposed to be your fellow brothers and sisters yeah. in the faith when when you just sit there and go, I think you're wrong. Yeah. I think you're wrong about Jesus's political affiliations. Yeah. You saw that Well, you know, it's. I mean, part of me wants to say. Um, you agree to disagree, and you you. Try to love each other, and mm. I think for you know probably for you know, most of the community that would work. Mm. But when you see the Ku Klux Klan mm. gathering around a cross and setting a fire and spewing hatred in the name of Christ, mm. then part of me wants to say that's apostasy. You know, that's mm. 
that's um, you know that's evil. Uh, and the church has done a lot of evil in the name of Christ, and so they they're probably will probably not be able to avoid the situation where certain views which are held or policies which are practiced under Christian justification by people who claim to be Christians are so far off <laughs> the mark that you'd have to say, I'm afraid I just can't accept your mm-hmm. Christian identity. Um, doesn't mean we kill them. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we no, persecute no. them. Um, but I, again, I can't... Can you, I mean, can you see any alternative to that sort of? It's a... It's a hard one because I suppose the, the first, you know, the knee-jerk reaction by some is to say they're not a true Christian. They couldn't, they couldn't be. They could never be a Christian. And, and, you know, but oftentimes that's, you know, that comes out far too quickly. You know, yeah. if someone finds out that abortion isn't your main political issue, you know, that you're maybe you're more concerned about the nuclear arms race or yeah. systemic racism. And they go, well, how could you be a Christian and, and, and not think abortion is the biggest issue in the world? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I guess... Yeah, I think maybe it's a position, you know, New Zealand's so far removed, I guess, from the what seemed to be the real kind of coalface of it all and, you know, the American policy makers who sort of shape the world as they see it. Mm. You know, maybe it's a position of, for, for me perhaps, of being a little bit removed, so not having to have a very strong opinion, opinion on what I would, on what I would do if, you know, or what I would think of a certain person if we just came in the, yeah. to those loggerheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess rather than, I mean, you, you probably still end up there, but rather than starting on the basis of, do I accept that you are a Christian or not? Mm. It would be to ask the person to um, explain their views and how they correspond mm. to. You know, to the to the calling of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and mm. and I suppose expecting them to be able to do the to same. To be able view. to do, yeah, so, yeah, to have yeah, your exactly. own account in yeah. that same way, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that doesn't get us out the out the situation either, because it then does become. And I think this is the point you were raising at the beginning, Justin. It does become a kind of hermeneutical question, mm. because there are many people who would read the story of Jesus and endorse everything he said, but then say, but this is not intended for those who exercise military or political power. You know, this is this is for the church, or this is for your... Yeah, I mean, that particular one where you talk about, you know, the hermeneutical thing of the, the Sermon on the Mount, I remember, um, I think it was Barack Obama who, who did say that, in some respects, you know, America couldn't call itself a Christian nation because if it took Jesus' words seriously... It wouldn't have a military mm. because the Sermon on the Mount calls for, mm. you know, says that you can't exercise power over yeah. people. So I guess, I mean, some a lot of people thought he was very horrific for saying that, you know, he's betrayed America or, or all those kind of things. But I thought it was a very shrewd kind of statement, a very, you know, an aware statement of just how far Jesus calls you to go. Um, yeah, so that was interesting for, yeah. for me, yeah. Uh, I didn't know he had said that, but um, well, I mean, he you know, did, he did go on to endorse just war, you know, mm. as as I mm. know you've been aware. So mm. I guess you know, yeah, he kind of had to take the position where he chose the state line rather than what what we would consider the Jesus line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
taking the story of Jesus' life and not just the words that Jesus spoke, mm. but how he lived consistently throughout the course of his life and how Jesus engaged in politics and, and then taking that to, say, facing choices that we have to make today, yeah. uh, landing it with, you know, going to the concerns that you were listing off, that these were some of the, the priorities that Jesus carried during his life and yeah. his teaching, especially top of mind, you know, those who were marginalized, specifically mm. the poor. Um, as we face decisions that inevitably have to become quite binary, like voting, mm. as we're framing them up um, and, and, and wrestling with it, do you see us taking those priorities and then sort of shaping a ruler out of them to then assess our decision for, for each candidate as we, we engage with? Um, just because I'm a simple-minded man, I, yeah, I yeah. tend to create a, a scorecard as yeah, yeah. for people. Um, Gosh. I don't know, really. Um, I guess there's always going to be a... And we're seeing this at the moment in the US situation, isn't it? To mm. what extent does Donald Trump's character yeah, that's right. come I'll, into the I'll, judgment? I'll, yeah. Yeah, that's right. um, are we looking for godly people or are we yeah. looking for strong people yeah, and right. those, those sorts of issues? Yeah. Um, I think character, for me, has to be part of it because, mm. you know, I don't... Because, again, I think that's... You know, what Jesus exemplifies. Um, but then beyond that, I guess I guess it's a matter of trying to weigh the priorities as you see them mm. um, you know, at, at the time. And, I mean, policy is a very difficult thing to measure because there's all sorts of unintended consequences, consequences. from, from yeah. impact. So yeah. I, I guess I wouldn't be... I mean, I think, I think part of the phenomenon we're seeing at the moment in the world, as you mentioned, is a, is a, is a radical disillusionment with, the, with electoral politics and a, a belief that you know, democratic politics is, is controlled by a small elite and you know, it's not working anymore and people are, are giving up on it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of scary in a way because mm. of what's going to come into the vacuum. Um, but I wouldn't want to equate political involvement with simply with voting That's or fair. with yeah. you know with yeah. elected government even. Yeah. It's about how do we bear witness or how do we live a a collective way of life in which the sorts of values and priorities and concerns we see Jesus emphasizing uh, are most fully realized. Mm. Um, you know, and you start to feed in environmental concerns into all that, which you know, <laughs> you know weren't big issues in his day, but right. you know, yeah. so today, are, yeah. Yeah, that today really are. And yeah. so, it's always going to become a matter of trying to hold lots of different things in tension and trying to make the best judgments that we can mm. in the circumstances. That's right. Um, and there are just so many. There are so many. There's so many issues. Ambiguities. <laughs> I mean, for example, in the US, I don't think it's it's true here, but in the US, there was and there still is actually. A movement among some Christians around tax resistance. Yeah. So if you know forty percent of the American tax dollar is spent on on war, on war yeah. and I am um, you know a Christian who doesn't believe in involvement in war, then should I withhold that forty percent of my tax? And um, some still do. Some you know some redirect it to other sources, or I argue for the right to redirect uh, their portion to another source. So. 
uh, others mm. don't think that's achievable in their situation. So mm. I suppose this the, this kind of point of the discussion um, does lend itself well to something I did want to float, and that's the idea of do you, Chris, have any kind of questions you would ask someone who was undecided politically? You know, like any kind of questions you'd, you'd want them to consider in terms of, you know, policy or voting, you know, like in, to get into the mind of Jesus. Mm. Like, is there any mm. kind of way you'd want them to frame their consideration? Yeah, I probably wouldn't if I, if I could think about it long enough. I could probably come up with some quite, yeah, yeah. quite crisp ways of putting it. Um, <laughs> But I, I, you know, I think I think it would be possible to come up with certain questions that people should ask mm-hmm. of political um, candidates or political platforms, which would be to do with you know how are the most vulnerable members of the community affected by these policies? Um, you know, to what extent do they uphold human dignity and promote you know? the flourishing of, of life and so on, to what extent do they promote um, peacemaking rather than rather than um, either war or, or, or just straight competition? I mean, I think it would be possible to come up with those sorts of questions. I mean, how you'd answer them, though, would oh, still be... Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Kind um, of an individual conscience vote in yeah, some respects, right? Yeah, And I think with the abortion issue, I mean, it's a... It's a it, I mean, in New Zealand, we because we're such a small country, um, we get by a lot of these things in a, in a sense by by not really arguing about them. You know, <laughs> we kind of. Um, I can understand the strong anti-abortion position that mm. Christians take. I mean, I I can understand because you could justify that in terms of care for the most vulnerable. Mm. Um, you know the the value of human life. Is, I can understand the kind of positions that people come up with, but um, but here we don't see those as the as the make and break issues. I mean, we live with abortion in a sense by not asking too many questions, or by balancing those questions with other questions around um, you know the right to have control over your own body and, and those other equally legitimate principle so because I, I think that's kind of the, the thing right would be it would be brilliant to come up with at some point you know the a list of questions to yeah to, to I'm sure somebody's if, done that yeah <laughs> um, you know and, and around the abortion thing there were as it Ron Sider wrote the book called consistently pro-life uh, and he, sure. he basically argued was arguing with his fellow Christians who were making abortion the make and break issue he said well if you're so pro-life at the level of the unborn. What about the death penalty? Mm. Yeah, you know, what about right. yeah. military yeah. violence? Right. You know, what about yeah. um, to police all those other ways in which human life is um, destroyed? Is yeah. destroyed? Yeah. yeah so be consistent if you're going to hold that position. Yeah, yeah. Which But these kinds of, I mean, I do think we just have to make the best of what we can do at the time because mm. we, we, you know, we're in the middle of it now. We look back. <laughs> I, I have a, a friend in the in the. States who wrote a book on hermeneutics called Slavery, Sabbath, War and Women is the title of it. Wow. So he looks at four big issues that the Christian church has historically differed on at a, at a level of interpretation of scripture. Um, Sabbath observance was fun. We hardly ever talk about it anymore, but you know, mm-hmm. it was a big issue in the early church. Um, slavery, Sabbath, War and Women. 
And he, he, he told me that when he was working on the book, one of the most sobering realizations he had was that if he had lived in the 19th century in the US, he would have probably been on the wrong side of the argument about slavery. Mm. Because the sort of biblical arguments that people were putting up seemed a lot more persuasive than the ones that the, the mm. uh, abolitionists were putting up. Now, we look back 100 years later, and we can't imagine how you could have ever mm. been persuaded by those sorts of arguments. But at the time, mm. it wasn't that clear. And I think some of the issues that we struggle with today are like that. I mean, around, certainly around um, you know, same-sex issues. We're mm. right in the middle of kind of moral um, debate about issues that at this stage seem really, really hard to think your way through. But probably in 50 or 100... I've seen this in my own life around the, around the, um, you know, the issues around the, the, the role of women in the church or in... You know, I, mean, I, I don't know if it's still an issue or not in most places, mm. but it used to be a really big issue. But mm. now people look... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was Keller again who said that, you know... In in a hundred years, some of a lot of what we believe will be laughable, but yeah. we just don't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. That's, and so yeah. it's it's kind of it it does somewhat amuse me, I guess, in in some ways when people say, "Oh, you know, everyone back in the days was such a bigot. How could they ever have believed that?" Not realizing that they'll eventually become a footnote in history right. themselves, yeah. and yeah. and a lot of the stuff yeah. that they've held dear and self evident just will not yeah. be that way. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. As you say, we just don't know what. Yeah. Tom Wright makes a similar comment at the beginning of his book. He said, I can almost guarantee a lot of what I say is wrong. <laughs> I don't know what parts are right and what parts are wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and so that comes back to the humility that comes from believing ultimately the kingdom is God's mm-hmm. and God is at work. And we're invited to collaborate as best we can. We'll probably get it wrong. Um, it's not worth killing over. It's not worth hating over. It's not worth, you know, it's not mm. worth damaging people over. We just... Mm. Um, now, I, you know, I do think a lot of the issues around, particularly around sexuality, it's it's just worth reminding yourself of that. that mm. You know, the, the most important thing is that you acknowledge this person's dignity and mm. you know, they're they're an image bearer. They're, they're an image way. bearer to yeah. respect the means yeah. you acknowledge they have the right to be who they are, mm. um, and that some of the more abstract questions are secondary of importance. Really, I think mm. we flip it flip it around and and see the kind of abstract or doctrinal positions as being primary, and then you treat people accordingly. That's right. Whereas if we flip it the other way around and say, my starting point is I treat everybody as being mm-hmm. worthy of my yeah. you know, trust and respect. And-